In this week's podcast, I talked to three, count them, three people in one episode. What's the meaning of it all? Who the hell do you think you are? Who gave you permission to sick three people on us? We can barely handle one, and you send three into my feed? How dare you? You finished? You through? Yeah. Oh, that's right. That's right, CNFers. This is the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, the show where I speak to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. This is the time of the month where I jam with the people from the Atavis Magazine to showcase and highlight the month's featured writer in the month's featured piece. She's Maddie Crowell, and her piece deals with the man who was sent to prison as a teenager as a minor and kept there for decades and what would happen to a man locked away for more than 30 years what would he do when he got out of a world that was then locked down by pandemic great stuff I mean it's a sad story but it's a great story if you know what I'm saying. follow me good I also talked to Jonah Ogles the lead editor on this piece as well as Ed Johnson who headed up out of his new brand design and their new design launch. So we we get into a little bit about how design adds to the story, how this new design is going to make for a more literary, immersive experience. Again, great stuff. Before I hand the ball off to Jonah, be sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you podcast and keep the conversation going on social media at CNF Pod. We're getting closer and closer to the launch of issue two of the audio magazine on the theme summer. In order to enjoy it, you got to become a CNF and member at patreon.com slash cnfpod. For as little as $2 a month, you get access to the magazine. And for a little more scratch, you can get transcripts and maybe some coaching. I know I need coaching. I mean, have you heard me talk? Have you read my writing? No? That's because it's so bad, I can't get anything published. Maybe I should hire a coach. If you can't do, interview. Such was the old tagline of the show. Maybe I'll bring it back. I'm feeling it. I miss the days when I used to shit on myself. I know I'm not exactly ringing the bell of my own endorsements, but let me tell you how important it is to have a coach in your corner. To see things that you can't see. If you're stuck on a pitch, need help with an essay or a book, give me a call if you're ready to level up. Sometimes you need someone who can see what you can't see. I already said that, but I want to reiterate. And I'd be honored and thrilled to help you get where you want to go. Just email me, creativenonfictionpodcast at gmail.com or brendan at brendanomera.com. Hey, hey. Yeah, and brendanomera.com is where you'll find show notes to this episode and over 250 other interviews as well as our micro-podcast, Casualty of Words. Head over there. That's where you can sign up for the monthly newsletter for a sweet, sweet dispatch of book recommendations, podcast news, cool links to articles, blogs. You're entered into book raffles as long as you're subscribed and on the main list. And there's a CNF and digital happy hour where we just get together. We hang. Sometimes I invite a friend on and we can pick their brain and you can get a little better at whatever it is you do. And we just sit around, sit around the fire, so to speak. And we just shoot the shit. Only for newsletter subscribers. Think about it, man. Think about it.
All right, that's enough housekeeping. I hate that I have to do that at the top of the show, but it's the only time I can almost 100% know that you're listening. I mean, you might be hovering that finger over the skip-ahead button, but at least you're here, man. So Jonah and I are going to talk a little bit about what made Maddie's piece so special, but also what makes an atavist story an atavist story. Get it? All right. Let's get after it. Just to get your sense as as an editor, you know, what makes an atavistian story? You know, what are what is it that makes it pop from a, an atavist point of view? You know, the thing we talk about most often is wanting Wanting our stories to feel cinematic, you know, wanting readers to feel like they are perched on the shoulder of these characters. And and I think what that means a lot of the time for us is, you know, scenes, really descriptive language, uh, both describing sort of the, the action and the environment in which it takes place, but also what's happening in characters' heads. In Maddie's story, you know, I, th- I think what what I was hoping for was some emotional resonance, you know, um, to I wanted readers to to feel close, close enough to this character that they felt things as he felt them, because it's not, you know, I, I think a lot of times when we describe uh, a story is being cinematic writers just assume that like there has to be an explosion or like a bank heist or something like that. And, mm-hmm. and that's yeah. not, that's not always true. I mean, d- don't get me wrong. I love a good bank heist uh, and, and explosions <laughs> don't, don't hurt a story's dramatic tension usually, but I I think it can also be done in, in quiet ways where where the action that's taking place is really an an interior action and it can be more character driven the way the story is yeah there's a you know speaking to that of like a quiet moment of of cinematic uh you know brilliance i think of uh in the movie i've only seen it once but in the movie castaway like when he finally gets back to you know mainland or whatever and he's at some sort of buffet or celebration he looks down at like a crab leg and Uh like he had basically been sustaining himself on those the entire movie and so then when he sees it there like on the plate and it's sort of a very luxurious and decadent thing you look at it and it's like it's a very quiet thing but you just realize the sort of the humor of that moment but the pain of it as well (laughs) yeah Right, right. Yeah, that's that's a perfect example. You know, the and and the reason that works in in Castaway is because of the rapport you you've built with this character. You know, you've just spent so much time with uh with Tom Hanks' character that you you have started to see the world a little bit the way he does. You know, I, obviously I don't think any any piece of art, be it literature or or film, is going to be able to you know allow you to fully inhabit another person's mind. But I think when we're when we're all striving towards that and pushing in that direction, I do, I do think it's possible to give readers a glimpse of that 
And, and those are the moments, especially with this story, but in any story like it, that I'm aiming for as an editor. Yes, but mostly as a reader, you know, like I, I just want, maybe this is because we're in a pandemic, but the connection is what I want. You know, that that's what yeah. always makes me remember stories or, or the stories that or films that I've seen that that I feel like, oh, my God, I I can relate to that. E- even though like Adolfo's character in this particular story, he he and I have, you know, very different backgrounds, very different lives. Obviously, he, he spent, you know, 34 years in prison. Um, but we, you know, I I feel for him as I, as a reader of this piece, you know, I I feel the frustration that he feels and, and and I hope that what readers will feel as they're reading it is, is that same thing. And will walk away feeling like we, we are all in this, you know, we are, we are humans in this together and and one person's pain can be felt by another. Yeah. And there's a, there's a moment of granularity in Maddie's reporting. And also it's, it gets to that quiet cinematics of Adolfo had just been released uh, from prison and he's at a convenience store. And it's just like, he has like the Gatorade and the Snickers or in the candy bars. Like I'm blanking on the exact things that he put on the counter, but it was just like such a very evocative thing that here he was like finally free and almost like not, knowing what to do but she got those details of like the exact candy and everything and it it really was just a really touching thing and you can really put yourself you know in Adolfo's shoes at that at that moment right right exactly and and the thing that I think makes that that scene really come to life is the line immediately after it after he he sets a Gatorade and a score and a Snickers on the counter and then Maddie has this line, if he had enough money, he would have bought everything on the shelves, you know? And, yeah. and that's such, that's such a great moment. And Maddie does this in so many places in the story where it puts readers in Adolfo's head, you know, and it, Adolfo is not like the most verbose guy, you know, he do, he doesn't just talk and talk and talk the way I'm rambling along now. <laughs> you know, he, he's pretty <laughs> quiet. And, and so when you're a writer and you're, you're, you're faced with a source who is a quiet individual, and yet you know that you need to get readers inside his head in order for that all important connection to be made, it can be really tough. But, but Maddie did such a nice job of finding those handful of moments like that, where she, she could put readers just on his shoulder. You know, because you you read that line and you think, oh, yeah, I know. I know exactly what he was feeling, you know, not just like his particular taste in in candy bar, which does tell us something about the character, but but also his what he hoped for in that moment, even though it's like as mundane as I would like to try all of this stuff. (laughs) Uh, It still tells you something about him. And when I was speaking with Maddie, she she said that I. you, the two of you shared, you know, several back and forth about trying to stick the landing with it, with the ending. She was having a hard time with it. And uh, without maybe giving too much away, maybe you could, uh, you know, take us to those moments in that dialogue of, you know, writer and editor trying to stick the landing of a piece. 
Yeah, yeah, that it was. I'm glad that she talked about it because that that's that's probably what I learned the most from in in editing this piece. Was we, I, I think we did end up sticking the landing, but it it took us a while to get there. Um, and and a couple of things I think helped us get to the the place we arrived at. The first was Sayward telling us to start the piece in a different way. Um, so I, I think, I think initially it was told, uh, or the first draft might've come in and it, and it was just a straight A to Z story, you know, just chronological. Um, I think that, I think that's right, but I, I could be wrong. It might've started somewhere else, but then we ended up switching it and sort of starting at a point that would introduce a little more tension right away, um, in, in the hopes that 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 tension would would sort of play off where the story ultimately ended. And I think that worked pretty well. And I hope that's somehow clear, even though I'm, I'm being intentionally vague. But the other thing that we did, or at least that I remember, I'm sure Maddie has her own take on this, but, you know, we sort of, we reached a point where we thought the ending was working all right. And then we sort of like engineered some echoes of it earlier in, in the story, if that makes sense, you know, so we, we arrived at this place and, and we had a few concrete details, uh, that, that happen in that final scene. And, and we found some ways to tuck similar details into earlier sections of the story. And, and I, I don't think, I'm not sure it's super noticeable. I I sort of hope it's not, but there are enough of them that I I think even subconsciously, at least for me as a as a reader, I, I think it just feels like a comfortable moment, if that makes sense. Like it's familiar, and and I felt almost like I had been there before, and, and I I hope that that really helped it feel satisfying and. It, not not in like a a pat way you know it's not um yeah it's not like a great end you know it's not like everybody picks adolfo up on their shoulders at the end of it and marches him around a field or anything um but it, i hope i hope readers feel like okay i we landed somewhere solid even if it's not necessarily like you know an uplifting place if that makes sense and also, I think um, I think it might be good to just talk a little bit about the Atavis new design going forward. You know, Maddie's is the first is the first piece of the new new design, though everything will sort of fall into that wireframe. But I maybe you can give us a sense of um, you know of what what that has been like and what your uh, you know what this uh, the sort of new design is saying for what you guys are presenting in terms of story and the the whole layout. Yeah, yeah, totally. And and I'm I'm sort of like the least qualified Atavist member to talk about this because I had so little to do with it. But I can talk as just like a fan. Um I mean, first of all, it's just really exciting anytime you, you get to have a redesign. Um and you know, this this was an important one for us because it it's our redesigned site that is we moved from our own platform to WordPress, um, which is owned by Automatic, which is the company that owns us. So it, it's sort of like we're being brought into the family fold, which, which is nice in and of itself. But, 
you know, the, the thing that I really like about the design is it's just so, so clean and so focused on individual stories. You know, you don't, um, you don't go to the homepage and see like every story we've ever published. You just see like three or four of them. Um, yeah. And, and, and it, when you go into the story itself, you, there is sort of like a recirculation thing at the bottom that, that suggests other stories on similar topics, but, but it's not, you're not being hit over the head with um, distractions, you know, click here, go do this. It, it just allows you to fully inhabit this particular story that you're reading right then and to just exist in that moment and give it, as much of your attention as you can. And, and that's, that's such a rare thing these days, you know, especially online, you know, you can, we can all still curl up with a book and sort of, uh, you know, pretend that the rest of the world doesn't exist, but it, it's really hard to do online when you've got like 20 tabs open and things are flashing and popping at you. Yeah. So it's real. it's just so nice. I mean, the Atavist, this is one of the reasons I wanted to work for them you know, years and years ago, um, it, it's just such a reader friendly experience. And, and I hope I certainly felt that in the redesign and I hope that other readers do too. Oh, fantastic. Well, Jonah is always great, great to talk to you and get to pick your brain and, uh, tease out, uh, the story that you were the lead editor on. So I appreciate the time and I look forward to when we can do this again. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Great to talk to you again. Okay, so next I speak with Ed Johnson for a few minutes about the new design for Atavis. Very exciting. A+. It's lean, it's mean, it's downright literary. It's bad to the bone. Dare I say it's kind of metal. I'm overreaching and I don't want to get fired, so here's it. Yeah, I mean, what the, the process is really that, you know, Atavis magazine what was the Atavis technology platform, uh, you know, always existed on the same thing. And the Atavis technology platform was shut down. And so we had to move to WordPress. And so that was the real impetus behind the redesign, though we'd been thinking about uh, a redesign for a while. Um, kind of the ethos behind it is, you know, it's such a unique publication in that it publishes one thing every month, one story, you know, compared to most of the websites I've worked on that deal with content. That's just like, you know, a fraction of what's usually published. So the ethos is really about making people focus on each individual story and creating the best environment for uh, readers or anyone who visits the site to really sit down and and engage with, you know, our our stories um, rather than click around a lot or, you know, serve a lot of ads. Like, you know, that, that's not what the artist does. In the redesign was really thinking about how we wanted to kind of bring out the more literary qualities in the design, you know, with the transformation from it being part of a tech platform to being a standalone publication, we really, uh, you know, Sabre and I and the, the editors talked about how we wanted to bring out the literary quality of what the work we make. And we did that with, you know, the fonts we chose and kind of the simplicity and the, and the white space and, you know, the sort of a more elegant approach to, to the content that we create. I love that, that this idea of making the tech more literary and it's not something you necessarily associate with tech being literary. So maybe you can un unpack that a little more in terms of 
uh, how to make something that is, you know, on, on the surface, like coldly technological into something that's more warm and literary. Yeah, I mean, for me, when I'm thinking about content design, I really think about the typography. And so, you know, we use this typeface called Triptych, which is um, by a, a font foundry called the Pipe Foundry, which is based out of Norway. Um, and, it, and it's kind of a evolution of a really classic typeface from the 18th century and kind of the ideals of that. So the, bringing out the literary quality was more just kind of like, you know, making it mo feel more like a book and, and, and more... Um, and the typeface really does this, I think, where it it feels just like more like a literary journal rather than, you know, like a website that's trying to serve you stuff. Right. And so that's how, you know, that was really a, a when I saw this font and I knew this project coming down the pike, I, I thought about, um, you know, I really thought it would be perfect for for what our goals were. Nice. And I, I, I also wanted to get get a sense from you from the design angle, how important that is in terms of the overall storytelling package. So, of course, we have the pros and and everything in photography, but how does design fit into the storytelling aesthetic, if you will? Yeah, I mean, you know, the first, whenever I start, and this is what I've always done when I've done editorial design in both print and digital, is, you know, I like to start by reading the story and hopefully through the process of both assigning the art and the or the illustrations and bringing the design together, I'm reflecting what the story's about and kind of the, the vibe and the, you know, the narrative of the story. So, you know, some, some stories are that we do are, are kind of just more of a adventure, right. And that, that the design and the color choices and everything should reflect that where some are very serious and about, you know, very troubling things. And so that, that similarly should be reflected. So I, I tend to really be driven by what I read. So someone once told me, you know, the most important thing, important thing as an editorial designer is to, read over and over again um just it's just like editing right you, you read end up reading the stories a ton um to get it just right i love that and, and maybe lastly you know what was it about maddie's piece what about this story influenced your uh palette for designing this yeah i mean i think just like kind of the you know it's a very sad story in a lot of ways uh obviously you know i i think for me when i think about these sort of sentences i think they're 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 very draconian and, and don't reflect a proper society. And, you know, so I think what I wanted with the design was to, you know, we have the dark background um, with the, the white type and, and, and uh, typography. And, I, you know, I just kind of wanted to get people into a headspace of seriousness and, and somberness. I also think that, you know, we had um, Akilah Townsend was a photographer on this issue and, and she did a really good job of kind of adding texture and, and, um, and color to, to the story and brought that out with the, the portrait she made and the other photography. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I just, it, it's hard to, we're working both within the brand of the Atavist and then also with, um, within each story. And I just try to really, as I'm reading, think about how to reflect what the story is about subtly with the, with the design choices. So, you know, that, you know, I did yeah, that. I think I did that well this time. I'm, I'm pretty happy with how this layout turned out. Oh, yeah, it's great. And I love that it's like you're keeping in mind the aesthetic of the Atavis brand. But then within that, each story is kind of its own thing as well. So there's kind of like two balls that you're juggling at all at all times when it comes to, you know, designing a story for, you know, you know, that month. It's very interesting. I mean, that's, you know, the brand versus the story is always the kind of when you're doing editorial, it's it's always 
the not the conflict, but how, what you have to think about. I mean, and with the Atavist, because again, it's such a unique publication. It's much more about individual storytelling for me, um, and and that really reflects it. Whereas, like if you're doing most digital websites, you're using templates, and it's like the same thing over and over again that you're just putting in different pictures, right? Nice. Well, excellent. Ed, this was, you know, it was great to get, get your insights into this. And I appreciate you taking the time because, you know, what you've done with the, the redesign, of course, with Maddie's, uh, with Maddie's very like sobering and uh, wonderful piece on Adolfo. Uh, it marries well. And uh, so it's just a uh, job well done. I can't wait to see what else you uh, cook up next for uh, subsequent stories. Yeah, you know, I, it's, it's such an interesting place to, to stories to work on. You know, the, these, this long format is just it really allows for a lot of thoughtful design, which I, I really appreciated uh, having the chance to work on since I've been here. And at long last, now you know a thing or two about the design, and here's the moment you've been waiting for. You sat through the undercard, and now comes the headliner to this Atavistian rock festival, the globe-trotten, native Chicagoan, the notebook villain, Matty Crowell. Give it up. Ooh. Give me a sense about uh, what, you're, what you're reading these days, whether that be, uh, you know, books or, you know, novel, nonfiction, magazine, column, you know, whatever. You know, what are you, uh, what are you consuming uh, right now? Yeah, well, I always have like a, a pile of magazines um, around me at all times. And and then usually I have like a book at the same time. And I sort of just switch off depending on, you know, what my mood is. Um, but, you know, the magazines, I I still read Harper's cover to cover. I still love Harper's uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of just the sort of other magazines, the, the New York Review and the LRB and uh, the New Yorker. I've sometimes get read and sometimes they don't but um right. i i just started this uh new it's not new at all actually i'm sort of late to the party but um this book by david gran called killers of the flower moon oh it's amazing that's amazing okay you've read it yeah so it's about this osage um these osage murders and and sort of the birth of the fbi I, i'm just in the beginning so I, I i don't know yet what happens but it's really gripping um and really just really a fascinating story so far. And as a a journalist who who writes in in long form narrative, as you're reading reading that book as a reporter, as a writer, you know what are the what's the static crickling around in mm. your brain as you as you're <laughs> in the synapse? Like, what are your synapses doing as you're reading that so far? I have a lot of questions for David Grant, <laughs> actually, about the sort of behind the scenes of how this got made, because, you know, a lot of this book takes place in the, is it the 1900s or the late 1800s? I can't remember. Early um, 1900s. Early yeah, 1900s. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you just feel reading this book, like you're right there like you know he had just reported this story and um so you know his ability to kind of recreate this this like past uh or recreate based on i don't know archives and i don't know exactly where he was able to get you know all of his information but he it really does feel like the the story comes alive and i think that is something that's really hard to pull off in in nonfiction writing is to be able to um make a nonfiction story feel like fiction 
Excellent. Yeah. And it, and on your on your website, I read that you know you say you're most drawn to writing about people who, by choice or necessity, live on the fringes of society. So, so what's the kernel of that? What's the you know the allure for you? <laughs> I've had a hard time, to be completely honest, like kind of trying to figure out what what sort of what the the thread is in all the different stories that I write because my process is sort of I'll come up with an idea or I'll get interested in something and then I'll jump into it um and I don't really sort of connect the dots on like what I'm you know what sort of theme I'm following until later and so this was something I sort of I actually sat down with a friend and she helped me workshop uh my uh quote-unquote beat <laughs> um and, and we came up with this together and I think I don't know. I mean, I've I've always been interested in in um, people who are doing strange or interesting things, or have you know strange or interesting ideas or or ideologies or ways of looking at the world that are different or you know um, you could say on the fringes. And I'm also equally interested in people who have been sort of pushed out. Um, people who you could say have be, you know populations that have been like not very visible that have not been given the sort of resources or been sort of recognized by the, whatever you, you want to say, the forces that be, the powers that be in, in, a, in a society. And so, yeah, I'm just interested in looking at sort of places, you know, where that is happening and looking at sort of why that, that came about. Like, why is it that, why is it that we, you know, in the broadest sense, why is it that we create hierarchies within societies? Why is it that some people, you know, just don't get an equal voice in a society? Why is it that, you know, why do we sort of create groups and, and create other, the other? And so, yeah, so I've just sort of, I think that is sort of the, the thing I'm, I'm interested in following. I know it's very abstract, but I, I think it's sort of a theme in a lot of pieces that I write. Where do you think that comes from? I don't know. That's, that's actually a really hard question. And because I think for me, a lot of like the, how I come to journalism is sort of, intuitive in a way like I feel sometimes like I I just sort of follow a story or follow a sense but yeah I I, I would have to think about that to, more to be honest I I don't exactly know where it's coming from sure and and I, I'm always kind of interested in how people you know get into this this vocation and you know maybe you can you know just express how you, you know why you were drawn to journalism and this this kind of storytelling I started out in journalism sort of by accident. I was uh, I was really interested in philosophy, actually, and I thought it was going to be like a, a philosophy or an academic or a, at least pursue philosophy as a PhD. And um, then I did this abroad program in college um, in Morocco, sort of right at the wake of the Arab Spring. It was a journalism and Arabic program. And that was really the first time that I fell in love with journalism. I was I started working on this story about the sort of the wake of the Arab Spring. I started looking at like kind of why sort of look, looking at what had gone wrong in Morocco, I think you could say, and, and sort of one like trying to understand why, why the, the, the Arab Spring had failed there in, in a lot of senses. So I was interviewing the leaders who the, the, there was a small cohort who ironically had also been philosophy students, a lot of them, but I was interviewing the leaders of the, the Arab Spring in Morocco and, and in in that process, ended up getting like followed myself by the Moroccan Secret Service, and and sort of got a tiny little dose of sort of what they were going through. And you know, it was just the sort of first time that I felt like I was seeing 
a powerful regime like, you know, the Moroccan um, kingdom and, and his inner circle could sort of take down um, these revolutionaries. And, and, and so, yeah, I just completely fell in love with, with the process of being able to kind of ask a question. And even if it was an abstract question for me, like, you know, what, why had this failed? Or, um, and then to be able to sort of chase it down and, and at least get some concrete answers. And so I started there and then really also fell in love at the same time with foreign corresponding. I think that that experience had kind of opened my eyes to, to being able to report abroad and then moved to Ghana the following summer where I worked for a local newspaper and then moved to India after college for about a year, first working at a local Indian magazine there called The Caravan um, and then freelancing and moving around. And so I sort of got, got into journalism mainly through traveling um, and through, through living in different countries and getting a taste of like foreign corresponding. Mm. And when you're preparing for a reporting trip or an interview with someone, um, there I think there are a lot of times maybe two schools of thought. A lot of people might do a lot of research ahead of time, and then some other people might be like, you know what, I'm going to do just a little bit so I know a little bit, and then I'm just going to ask the questions and let the questions sort of lead me down whatever road and then just kind of be a little more improvisational as the conversation unfolds. So what's, what's your approach uh, when you're, you know, interviewing someone, when you're looking to start pulling on that string? Yeah. Yeah. That, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think it, for me, completely depends on the story. In some cases I do a lot of preparation, like, especially if I'm interviewing like a, a government official or someone who's sort of, you have to have talking points and you get like a set amount of time. And um, mm. I often will sort of prepare questions ahead of time. But my favorite kind of interviews are the ones that you just sort of leave the recorder on and uh, and you just let the conversation like become natural because um, I think that's where you pick up the most interesting stuff, details that you wouldn't have gotten otherwise or side stories or tangents. Like the best, the best thing is when they go on tangents because you, you just, if the, those tangents find a way back into the story, I think often. But yeah, for me, it's just very much a mix. It really just depends on the nature of the story and the amount of time I have with the subject. Throughout the course of whatever reporting I've ever, ever done, I've, I've always struggled with the recorder. And maybe it's because I have like this romanticized idea of some of the old guard reporters that I used to, that, you know, that I admired, like the John McPhee's of the world and, and everyone who totally eschew voice recorders of any kind. And they just go to the notebook and I just love notebooks and pencils. And I, I love that. But I also know the value of the recorder being this big troll that just, you know, a trolling net that just captures everything. And then you can be judicious about what you use, knowing that you have everything. And um, so when you're reporting, you know, what is your sort of uh, your toolkit, so to speak, but also your relationship to, to the voice recorder and in, uh, in, uh, when you're, when you're interviewing and reporting. I very much would love to not to have to use the recorder. Um, I wish my memory was good enough. I wish um, <laughs> that I could just record things without it because I do, I agree that I think it can, Often, once you're, the person you're trying to interview sees the recorder, even when you try to be discreet about it, I do feel like walls will come up or people are a little bit more careful or, I don't know, just a little bit more hesitant. <laughs> I've tried yeah. things like uh, sometimes, I mean, I always ask permission before I record, but sometimes I'll wear like, this is kind of silly, but I wear like a big oversized shirt that has this big pocket in the front and sometimes I'll stick the recorder 
like in the pocket facing up. Um, mm-hmm. And it, especially when we're like walking or trying to do an activity together, I just let it like record and, and just try to um, make the subject just forget that it's there because yeah, I think that the worst kind of interviews are the ones where you're just where the subject is very stiff and you're very stiff and there's this recorder out and they're like very aware of it. And uh, so, yeah, I, tr- I try to make it more discreet, but it doesn't always work. I know. And I, I wish like, you know, you, you can be scribbling along like crazy and invariably either you're going to lose stuff because you can't read your penmanship or the gaps that you are going to naturally miss. You're going to fill in with however Maddie Crowell talks to like mm-hmm. kind of spackle in the quote if you're looking to quote and. And so it's never 100% accurate. And I think if you're a real stickler for accuracy, of which it's so important to be accurate these days, it's almost like it's the recorder is, even though it's got a battery and it can die on you and it's an extra layer of technology, it's just, it it really, I've come around to it that I just, I need to just suck it up and say, it's it's fine. You you need this. It's for the, it's for the better minute of the, of the story and also just (laughs) accuracy. It depends. Do you want truth or do you want accuracy? <laughs> oh my God. Run with that. <laughs> now I can't remember the name of the book, but there was, um, I saw there was a, a Broadway play about this. Um, Daniel Radcliffe played this young fact checker from some big magazine. And uh, he was fact checking this writer and the writer was being really difficult because the writer was like, yes, what you're suggesting is factually accurate, but what I'm writing is truthful. <laughs> um, oh, it's a lifespan of a fact. I think that, yes, thank you. Yeah, that's yeah. that's what it was called. Yeah. So that's, yeah, I, uh, I understand both sides. I've worked for a fact, as a fact checker for many years too. So I, I can appreciate the sort of like meticulous, fastidious, um, both being a writer and being a fact checker. I, 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 you know, I'm always grateful for the fact checking process. Um, well, speaking of the writing and, and reporting of this, this great piece that you wrote for Atavist, um, is, uh, it, it was a really gripping read for me. And I'm someone who, when I read, I reading of any kind tends to like put me to sleep no matter what. <laughs> it, it's always, a, it's always a stress, like a stress, like, come on, Brendan, stay awake. Um, but I, I read your, your piece. I was able to read your piece and I, it didn't put me to sleep at all. And I was just like so engrossed by the thing. And so I, that's a, that's a testament to what you were able to pull off the piece. So, um, so maybe you can start, just tell us, you know, how you arrived at the, at this piece and, um, and what the story is about. This story started actually about a year ago, you know, when the pandemic first hit back in March, um, which feels now like a lifetime ago, but sort of right around the time that the the world felt like it was kind of screeching to a halt. I found myself kind of interested in this question of what it would be like for somebody who had been um, locked up and especially someone who had been locked up for a long time um, to come out into this world, like the to go sort of from one lockdown to another. Uh, And I was in Chicago at the time for a couple of months and um, so I reached out to some organizations. There, there are a lot of. There's a very robust sort of circle of um, criminal justice organizations, and there was this group, Restored Justice, who put me in touch with Adolfo. The first time that I talked to Adolfo, I think he had just he, he had come out like maybe one week earlier. So I oh, wow. I, uh, I called him. I think it was late March or early April when I first called him, and I started talking to him. And and uh, this, I, I don't know. I just sort sort of quickly realized that there was just a lot more to 
his story that that I felt I wanted to get into and uh, more than of course the story I had started out thinking that I was going to write and um, you know here's somebody who grew up with very limited resources and very limited set of choices and arguably with very little freedom in a way and had been locked up for 30 years and is coming back into this world not just a world under lockdown but he's also coming back to the very neighborhood that that you could argue put him or sent him to prison in the first place um, or led to his his um, ending up in prison. And so I think that like his story for me was was sort of this interesting look at this question of like, you know, has anything changed in 30 years? And, you know, I think Adolfo would say in his neighborhood, at least, you know, dancers no. And so you know, why is that? And um, so I just found myself sort of kind of having one question lead to another and um, just also just finding myself really just fascinated um, and uh, compelled to tell his story and, and feeling like there was just a lot um, to say there. You know what this piece kind of reminded me of it, it was uh, Alex Kotlowicz's, um there are no children here. Um, yes. The, like there was echoes of that in this. Was that kind of on your mind when you were, you know, kind of composing this reporting on this and then writing it? Very much. Yes. Um, I would say that was like the single biggest influence uh, for this piece. And just all of Kotlowitz's work, I think, just really brings like this very human angle to these much bigger issues that I think often get abstracted and talked about in sort of like macro sort of level conversations that that I think um, are good and important and productive, but also sort of neglect to, to show the sort of human side to the story. So yeah, Kotlowitz, I'm a big fan of his work and, um, and, so, and there are no children here. I read uh, before I was writing this and uh, yeah, I, I sort of, I really admired his, his style and maybe I stole a few things from him. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think a, a testament to your skill in this story was you just you lay it out there. You, you, you're not heavy handed with, you know, being overly without, with being like preachy or this is what's wrong. You just say, you just lay out his story. And, and like, was that like a really important um, sort of a linchpin for you on which to tell the story? Like, I'm not going to preach to the choir. I'm just going to tell this story and you be the judge. That's exactly how I wanted it to read. And I'm, I'm glad that it, I read that way to you. Um, that was very intentional. I, I didn't want to get too, I definitely didn't want to be preachy. I definitely wanted it to be neutral. And I, I, I also intentionally um, didn't write this in the first person. Like I really wanted it to kind of be Adolfo's story. Um, and, and he really sort of, I, I felt almost like I was um, a messenger in a way. Like I was sort of the way that I would write this would be like, just, you know, we spent a lot of time talking on the phone and we met up a few times in person and I spent like a week with him, but, but mainly I would just kind of go th over things like again and again. And, um, he was very, very patient with me. Um, especially for like, you know, I was asking lots of annoying questions like, and what did you have for breakfast that morning? And what did you, you know, wear that day? And do you remember how you felt after this thing happened? And, and, uh, yeah, we got into a rhythm where, you know, I would just call him or there was a time where I was calling him almost every day. And he, yeah, he was just really patient and helpful. And um, I think eager to, to, to tell me his story and to get his story out there. 
I love hearing uh, reporters talk about this, uh, like about getting those granular details that to the subject are like, why the hell do you want to know this? And but for us, like the the way, you know, I don't know the way the drawstrings on a on a hoodie are like, it's like a small detail that might just be like, oh, OK, this person might be without even realizing it a little off balance because that thing's not even like those little details are just so evocative. They mean a lot to us as writers and mm-hmm. reporters. But to them, they're like, why the hell do you want, you want to know this? <laughs> Yeah, he he uh, he was confused at first, but I just tried to explain to him, look, like I'm trying to I'm trying to recreate this and, and can you help me? And he caught on immediately and he was he was he was great. Yeah, he's he's just like a very dynamic, self-aware, um, intelligent person. And, and so it was actually it was actually a lot of fun to talk to. And I, I learned a lot talking to him myself. And he always surprised me like he always just had something. Some, he would just add something that I didn't even, you know, consider or, or think through really, you know, I, I think he just, he really brought this story to life. And speaking of details, there one section I highlighted is, you know, when he's released from, from prison, he's out and you say, you know, you know Adolfo picked out three different, is that a, a convenience <laughs> store? You know, he picked out three different kinds of Gatorade, a score bar and a Snickers. <laughs> And it's just like the the specificity of of that. It's just it's so charged with detail and 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 the reporting that you have to get to. But it's it's one of those things that really puts us there. Like it wasn't just a candy bar; it was a score and a Snickers. <laughs> I, I I love that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was something that he he uh, yeah that was that was a whole scene that we went through in, in great detail together, and you know he remembered everything too, so that was helpful for me <laughs> of course and like and why wouldn't he it was like yeah the first time you know being being out in you know out of out of the system it's just like you would think you know the world is turning from you know black and white into color again, and it's just the I can see the score by I can almost like picture what it must have been like to be holding all of that stuff in his hand and then putting it on the counter. <laughs> yeah yeah um i wish I, that was a scene i really wished i had been there for in person um i missed it by like a few weeks but uh yeah i it he was helpful in in recreating it um yeah excellent well it it as was these as sort of atavist podcasts are a little bit shorter than I typically do when I have people on. So somewhere down the road, I'd love to have you on for maybe a long, a longer conversation. Um, but as we bring this airliner down, I always, I've been really getting into asking uh, people on the show to, un, to, to offer a recommendation of some kind, you know what? And that can be anything from a coffee cup to a kind of coffee or tea or to a pair of socks. I don't care what it is. <laughs> um, so maybe, maybe you can share with the listeners just a recommendation that is uh, exciting Maddie Crowell these days. <laughs> sure. Although I don't know how exciting uh, <laughs> this will be because um, it was actually something that my atavist editor recommended to me because we were on the phone um, talking about this piece and I was really frustrated at one point and feeling like stuck. And, um, and he told me about, uh, this book that John, John Steinbeck kept while he was writing East of Eden called journal of a novel. Um, that's great. And, uh, yeah. And I ordered it and I, uh, I've been reading it, um, or I finished reading it and, and it's just fascinating. Um, I found myself more interested in reading that than, than in reading East of, East of Eden because, 
this here's this writer you just see the sort of the daily struggle and and there are days where where he writes you know had a great day wrote like wrote a full chapter and then there are days where you know he can't get get anything done or he has to scrap the day's work and it's just really reassuring to know that you know John Steinbeck still still struggled so I would recommend that to anyone who's who's interested in writing or or trying to write or anyone who even just likes to read or anyone who likes East of Eden, <laughs> which I still haven't read. <laughs> and, and that said, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about being you know frustrated in writing this piece and trying to crack the code of it. So, you know, in, in moments of writing, writing this piece, you know, what, what were those moments of frustration and, you know, and how were you able to kind of crack the code and get through to the other side? Yeah, I'm not sure if I ever fully did. <laughs> I think that um, I think that the for me the hardest part about this piece has always been the ending, um, because uh, because it feels a lot like Adolfo's story is is not over. Like it's it feels like there isn't really an end yet. You know, there's still a lot for, he wants to do, and there's just a lot that could still happen. And and so I was I really was struggling. Like, how do you wrap up a piece that how, how do you wrap up a piece to make it feel c- conclusive to the reader, but also ambiguous? Like, how do you end on this note of like, you know, a lot still could happen and things are okay, but maybe they're not okay, but they're okay. You know, I, 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 uh, I really sort of, I really struggled with that. And I think, I think when you struggle with the ending, you struggle with the whole structure of the piece because, because the ending is just so important in, in like bringing a piece together and, so yeah, I would say that 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 has been the thing that that Jonah and I often were talking about was how do you uh, how do you kind of wrap it up and and you know I, by ending I mean both the last scene and the kind of second half of the piece of him coming out into the world again I think both were yeah both have been the sort of problematic and difficult but yeah when I when I've talked to people about uh, about endings. Uh to me what i to me it's very important just personally to uh to have the ending in mind as soon as you can in the process because it ends up being a lighthouse in the distance and then it's yes. like oh okay now i know where i'm going yeah. and and sometimes that sometimes that ending you come to it very early in the process like oh i know where i'm going like that's i, I have a true north uh, sometimes it takes a little while, but the sooner you can get there, it's like, okay, now every word feels like it's in service of that destination. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, I think sometimes it's luck. Like sometimes yeah. I'm reporting on a story and I, I see the ending immediately in a scene or in something someone says, um, and then you just get really lucky. And sometimes, sometimes that doesn't happen and you're just sort of like swimming blindly <laughs> trying to <laughs> find a way to bring things to a close. Oh, fantastic. Well, well, Maddie, this was great to talk to you. This, this piece was, was incredible. I really commend you on a job well done. I, I loved it. And I, I think a lot of readers are going to, are going to dig it too. So thanks so much for carving out the time and coming on the show to, to talk shop and talk thank, about this piece. Thank you. And thanks for, for having me. I tell you, That episode was a heavy lift in the edit. I'm not used to stitching together so much stuff. The show is a production of Exit 3 Media, LLC, proudly a media company of one, where we make podcasts and solve your every writing, audio, and editing need. 
we turn the screws, baby. Tighten things up. Tell them, tell some good story. We're here to help. By we, I mean me. Glad you're here. Glad you stuck around. How are you doing? How's the essay? How's that essay you're working on? How's the book? You taking that leap? That's fun. How's the research? You getting far? Making progress? I'm in a funk of all funks where and where some people fill that hole with drugs and booze or retail. I tend to fill it with booze, but this time I've been decluttering to fill the emptiness inside. I'm burning it all to the ground, man. Can't take it anymore. DVDs, CDs, Blu-rays, collectibles, like this big Breaking Bad collectible thing I have. It's in the barrel and the thing. It's got an unopened Poyos Hermanos apron in there. Yeah, I got one of those. I got it for Christmas a few years ago or something, or maybe it was my birthday. Who knows? And I've been hanging on to it for why? I, I Guilt? Anyway, T-shirts, it's all going. I'm on day five of a 30-day declutter thing. Day one, you get rid of one thing. Day two, two, whatever. You know, three, day three, so on. By the end of the month, I will hopefully have purged 465 items, if I did my math right. The less I have, the more I gain, you know. On this beaten path, I reign, right? Rover, wanderer, nomad, vagabond. I don't know. Call me what you will. I look around us and I feel so trapped by these things. We've always wanted, we being my wife and I and producer Hank here, we've always wanted to live in a tiny home. And right now we live in this 1,100 square foot mansion. And it's a, it's a cool little place with a little yard with an apple tree that I like to read under if the weather's right and certainly drink tall boys under, rain or shine. I'm grateful for all I have, I really am, and this impossible privilege of this life that I lead. I often go through the day and think, you don't deserve all this bullshit. Why do you get to have a roof and food and clothes and a podcast? You're not special. You're just an average 40-year-old dude squandering his life and career when there are other people who would die for what you have. And here you are, stressed out about whatever bullshit comes up in that day, starting the day with whatever sense of dread is weighing you down, and now you're like purging your stuff like you're some asshole. You have no focus and you wonder why you can't accomplish a single goddamn goal that you set for yourself before the weight of the world crushed your spirit sometime in your mid to late 20s. Anybody else feel this way? I don't know. I I don't see any hands. At this point, you're probably left. and uh, I wouldn't blame you. I wouldn't. I wouldn't you know, this week, I would not blame you. Well, for those who are still listening, sorry I get like this. My producer here is uh, giving me the throat throat slash signal, so I guess that's I guess I gotta I gotta button this up. So like I used to say back in the day, if you can do interviews, see ya.